continue in our series today called Politics and the Bible. And uh, I just thought because we were heading into a midterm, it'd be a fun topic. <laughs> anyway, so here we are. Um, our text comes from Matthew chapter 28. If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and flip over there. I'm just curious if we have any Star Trek fans in the house, not Star Wars. Probably find a lot of Star Wars fans, but Star Trek. People remember Star Trek back in the day. They're still making movies. Yep. And uh, got uh, Captain Kirk and Captain Spock or Lieutenant Spock or whatever his name was, you know, and the warp drives and the Klingons and the, all that sorts of stuff. So um, one of the things about Star Trek was they had this, uh, this guiding principle called the Prime Directive. So if you're familiar with Star Trek, you've heard of the Prime Directive before. Basically, the Prime Directive was this statement that uh, they used to, that the Starfleet officers and crew people used. So when they would go and meet or, or, or find a new, discover a new civilization, new world somewhere, uh, that they would not go in and interfere with that world if they were not culturally or technologically ready to meet the rest of the universe. So they didn't want to go in and disrupt a civilization that was not prepared to, um, to, to, to meet the rest of everybody else in the world. So this was what they called the prime directive was, we'll only go in there and we'll assess, and if the people are ready for it, then we'll, we'll go ahead and reveal ourselves and show them our starship and invite them into outer space and that sorts of stuff. But Jesus himself actually had a very similar prime directive, if you would, that he left for you and I and that he left for his disciples. And it's referred to in the Bible as the Great Commission. Um, this was Jesus's one of his, some of, among his last words to his disciples, his last directive to them, that he wanted them to guide their efforts of evangelism, their efforts of disciple-making of others. So what I'm going to ask for us to do is to stand to our feet and read Jesus' great, the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28. We'll be reading verses 18 through 20, Matthew chapter 28, beginning at verse 18, Jesus' prime directive, if you would, to his followers. Here we go, verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You may be seated. Thank you so much. There's a whole lot in that verse or those verses, and we want to go ahead and dive in and unpack some of that. It says, verse 18, beginning there, it says, Jesus said to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You see right in that last verse that Jesus is one. It didn't say that for them to go and baptize in the names of three separate persons but in the name, the one name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three in one. Um, so let's stop right there for just a minute and talk a little bit about what Jesus is claiming. He says that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You see, when Jesus came to the earth, when he shed his blood on the cross, when he was resurrected from the dead, as a result of that, Satan's authority in this world uh, was greatly diminished. That is, the kingdom of God had come. God's reign, God's influence in the world on a global scale had now entered into human existence in a way that it had not since the Garden of Eden. 
up till this time, God had only interacted for the most part with the people of Israel in this little tiny strip of land about the size of New Jersey. Um, and then it interacted with other nations of the world. But for the most part, this is where his focus was with the people of Israel. And so Jesus is saying, hey, look, all the authority that Satan once had when he was running amok across this whole planet has now been subdued. And now that authority has been given to me. And so he says, as a result of that to his disciples, now I want you to go out into the world, go therefore out into the world and share with them the gospel. That is, inaugurate with them uh, this decision for Jesus Christ and then baptize them by this right, uh, this, this, uh, this holy right, and then and bapti- inaugurate them into this relationship through baptism. Now, this is where most teaching of the, of the Great Commission stops. It places a heavy emphasis when we hear about the Great Commission on the idea of evangelism, of going out into the world where people don't know Jesus and giving them an opportunity to make that decision for the forgiveness of their sins and the ability to go on to heaven. But the Great Commission continues on. Look at verse 20. He says, not only to evangelize, but also teaching those that you encounter to observe all that I commanded you, to observe all that I have commanded you. So if that's the prime directive, then the prime directive, the Great Commission, is not just evangelism. It's not just going out and helping people to see that they have a sin problem, that Jesus is the solution to the sin problem, and that if they turn to him, they can have their sin problem fixed. It includes more than that. It includes shaping society. It includes teaching people to behave in a certain way. It includes instructing the basics of the theology about who God is. It's informing people about the Bible itself, about the full counsel of God's word. And so Jesus is saying to his disciples, look, when you go out to evangelize, when you go out to tell people about their sin problem and have them repent of their sins, then follow that up with this discussion about the way that they live, how you want for them to live, and everything that has to do with how they treat their neighbor, everything that has to do with their relationship with the Lord, everything that has to do with their relationship with their family, about being a good boss, about managing their finances, the full instruction, everything that I have commanded you, everything that I have taught you, the full compass of the scriptures. So the Great Commission, the prime directive, is more than bringing people into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It involves also bringing the whole of people's lives under submission to and surrender to what the Scriptures teach. You follow that? That's disciple-making. They're supposed to go out and make disciples, not just to win souls for Christ. They're supposed to go—that's just the beginning of it. That's the first step. That's the justification. That's getting themselves right in a right relationship with God by asking for the forgiveness of your sins. But then there's the whole rest of the Christian life to be lived after that. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, hey, I want you to go out. This is what I want you to accomplish. Not just to evangelize, but also to disciple people, to lead them into a fully surrendered life to Christ. Friends, uh, not only then is the Great Commission involved evangelism, but it also involves the whole of society. It encompasses how we treat our families. It encompasses how being better parents, being better bosses, being better employees. And it also includes uh, shaping a better government because that's a major part of society. You say, well, Gordon, I'm not so sure. I mean, you sounds like you're extruding an awful lot out of just one verse. Um, so let's enter exhibit B, if we would. Um, take, for example, the many... Um, persons, the many characters in Scripture that occupied positions of high importance in their governments. Think about Joseph, for example. Joseph, who occupied the position of prime minister of the Egyptian empire. Joseph had tremendous influence over Pharaoh and the decisions that he would make. Joseph rose to the ranks. If God didn't care 
about, about believers being involved in government, then why would God ever put Joseph in a position like that? Um, another example, the prophet Jeremiah instructed the exiled Israelites who had been taken out of their homeland and taken off to the land of Iraq today, which would have been Babylon back then, and they were, they were living in Babylon. And instead of telling them to go to war against their captors, instead of telling them to, to do acts of sabotage against the Babylonian empire, rather, here's what Jeremiah instructed them. Jeremiah 29 and verse 7, he said, to seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you to seek the welfare of the city, the government, the people there to where I have sent you. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. Pray for the government, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Nehemiah was cupbearer to the king, a position of high importance to King Artaxerxes of Persia. Mordecai became the prime minister of Persia under King Ahasuerus. Queen Esther was King Ahasuerus' wife and had significant influence, again, over his decision-making. So we see all through Scripture these Christians who occupy positions of great importance in their governments, whether it was their local government of Israel or it was some, some secular government of another nation. Um, let's enter into, into evidence Exhibit C, if you would. Many of the prophets of the Old Testament addressed the sins of foreign nations. Guys like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Amos, these guys were all going around to foreign nations and were talking about some of the things that these nations were doing wrong. They were pointing out some of the sins of the policies of those nations. Guys like Obadiah and Jonah and Nahum and Habakkuk and Zephaniah, these whole books of the Old Testament are dedicated to talking about the sins of foreign nations. Friends, if God didn't care about government, then why would these guys be out there talking about the sins, the sinful policies of these foreign nations? The point is that they did speak out because God uh, wanted to have an impact on the government of those societies. Um, one more piece of evidence, and that's Exhibit D, comes from uh, Moses. Moses, in the law, had three parts to the law that he presented to the Israelites. He had the ceremonial part of the law. This governed them as a religious people, what they would do at the temple, the sacrifices that they would make, the particular dates of the year when they would make those sacrifices, how the priests were supposed to cleanse themselves, ritually cleanse themselves before they would go in and give service in the tabernacle. And so there was the ceremonial part of the law that dealt with the religious aspect uh, or the religious life of the Israelite people. But then there was also the moral law. These were what we think of perhaps as the Ten Commandments, you know, do not steal. But if I was to violate the moral law, then there was another aspect of the law called the civil law that would deal with, well, what if I violated the moral law? What if I violated some of the ceremonial law? What then? My, I stole your cow over onto my property. Well, there has to be some sort of reparations made. There has to be some sort of reaction uh, for that, some sort of punishment that's coming. And so there was a part of the law that Moses gave called the civil law that governed them as a people. You say, well, I don't know that God really uh, cared about government. Well, there you go, right in the law of Moses. God is giving them principles. He's giving them rules that would govern them as a people. Not to mention the fact that God appointed some of his own people to be leaders of the government. A guy by the name of King David. You follow that? Kind of a big deal. He was the president, right? President David. So again, if God doesn't care about government, then why would God, why wouldn't he only have pastors? Why wouldn't he only have priests that would serve at his tabernacle? No, God appointed, he anointed people to lead the government of the Israelite people. 
And so we see these, these, this consistent pattern running up and down through all the pages of Scripture that God is deeply involved in the government of his own, governing of his own people as well as the governments of foreign uh, nations. So the idea, the idea that Christians should not be involved in government, well, that's our title today, should, should Christians be involved in government? And people have different ideas about this, but they're not biblically informed. And so the idea that Christians shouldn't be involved in government, that completely ignores so much of the Scriptures. It's a very narrow view that only thinks about the cross, that only thinks about the sin problem that people have, and it's not focused on the whole of society. It's not focused on God's desire to come in and change not just the sinful hearts of people, but wants to shape the societies and the worlds and the families that they live in. Y'all with me? Okay. All right. Good. I'm glad. I wasn't sure. Some of those guys ate a lot of breakfast this morning. I want to make sure they're, they're still awake and with me. Give them a little, ladies, give them a little elbow if you need to, to keep them going. Um, all of this is part of us fulfilling the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations, verse 20, teaching them to observe all that Jesus has commanded us, and that includes influence in government. Okay. Well, our treatment, that's our treatment of this topic for today. And so that means it's time for us to ask our most important question, a question you've been just waiting to hear all morning, right? Um, what difference does all this make to my life? You say, Gordon, I mean, that's really great about how God gave moral laws and civil laws and ceremonial laws. But I mean, that was a long time ago. What's any of this have to do with where I'm living today, right? Um, well, let's, uh, let's talk about that. You know, the idea of getting involved in politics I'm sure for many of us, we're thinking about, we're like, you know, I just don't have time for that. Like, I see the people that get involved in it, and they, that's great for them, but I don't know that I really even care, right? I don't care enough to want to go out there and stand on some street side or, side or, or picket or whatever it is that people do that get involved in politics. And so I'm just not really sure that that's something I want to be, you know, spend my time with. For others of us, we really love uh, the idea of being involved in politics. We follow it. We watch the, the cable news networks and we, you know, reading it in the newspaper and we're up on all the different issues and who all the justices are and we know what's going on in the world of politics. Well, what I wanted to share with you today is a way that we can all be involved, either whether it's somebody that's like, I just, you know, somebody like me who watches C-SPAN. I mean, it's ridiculous, folks. I, I have a you're like, C-SPAN, I don't even know what that is, right? So for some of you do. But anyway, I watch this stuff. I check in what's going on during the day. I watch MSNBC in the mornings. I do because I want to peek under the tent and see what's going on over there. And then I'll watch some other news network later on in the day. And I just, you know, I, I, I digest an awful lot of information with regard to politics uh, to the point of ad nauseum. But, but that's me, Right. And you say, well, I'm just not interested there. So I want to give you some ways that we can all be involved. We can all be plugged in because clearly all throughout, up and down the pages of Scripture, God cares about government. God cares about the shaping of our societies. And so there's different ways that we can be involved at different levels. So let me share with you four ways that you can get involved in politics for shaping our government for good. Okay, for shaping our government for good. Number one is to pray for our political leaders. Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1, he writes, First of all, I urge you, Timothy, that supplications and prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, verse 2. And that includes kings, making prayers, supplications, thanksgiving for kings and all who are in high positions so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. A couple of weeks ago, one of my students, we, um, we have this online version now of, 
of my classes where I sit at my house and they all sit at their house and we log in. It's kind of like we're FaceTiming one another, but through the computer screen. And it'll populate on my computer screen all the different boxes of people. And so we can have live conversation, live streaming conversation with one another. And so we're having a conversation one night. And one of my students I knew really loved, she's like me, she really loved to follow politics. And so she, every night when she gets home, she told me that she turns on the news. And then she leaves the news on all through dinner, all through the rest of the evening. And until she goes to bed at night, she turns it back off again. And, uh, she, and, and that's her, she loves spending time sitting watching uh, news like that and digesting that stuff. Well, um, I made a comment about it in class that, hey, uh, so-and-so really likes watching news. And then she just kind of in a knee-jerk response said something about, uh, well, we really need to be praying for this White House. And her tone was very negative, and you could tell that she wasn't happy with how things were going. And so, um, I, I mean, I wasn't, you know, upset about it or anything. We just kind of rolled on with class. And she sent me an email the next morning, and she said, um, hey, Gordon, I just, I'm really sorry about my comment. It was inappropriate. I know we were talking about some theological stuff, and you mentioned about news, and then I just knee-jerk response to, you know, my comment. So I just, I just want to apologize if I overstepped. And I said, ah, that's fine. You know, we are a liberal arts institution, right, which means we'll take multiple perspectives, multiple ideas. That's the whole idea behind a liberal arts education, is that you take ideas from all different angles, from all different points of view, you, you, you dialogue about them, you debate those, that's the Aristotelian method, right? You debate on those, and then you let the truth bubble up to the surface, and we go forward with the truth. Not exactly what's happening in our schools and our, our universities these days, but in any case, that's what a liberal arts education is supposed to do. Um, and I, so I said to her, I responded back, I said, you know, um, I'm, I'm okay with it. It's fine for you to, to express your opinion. I'm all right with that. But I do want you to know one of the things that you said is right on, and that is that we need to pray for our White House because the Scriptures instruct us to do that. And I said, I want you to know that I pray for President Trump almost every day, just like I prayed for President Obama. And I think that was a, a wake-up call to her. That hey, look, the Scriptures are inviting us. The Scriptures are commanding us to pray for those who are in positions of government. And so, um, you know, that's, that's one of the things that we're supposed to do. Paul said to Timothy to make supplications and prayers and intercessions and even thanksgivings for kings and authorities and high positions. All right, number two. Well, first way that you can get involved in politics is to pray for our political leaders. And number two, second way, is to speak out against societal injustices. To speak out against societal injustices. You know, the history books are filled with the positive outcomes of when Christians have spoken out against injustices in society. Um, a historian by the name of Alvin Schmidt cataloged the impact of a Christian influence through the centuries. He begins in Rome. Let me share just a few of these with you with the Roman Empire. He noted that in 374 AD, because of Christians speaking out, the practices of infanticide and abortion in 374 AD were outlawed in the Roman Empire. In 404 AD, because Christians spoke out, the brutal practice of the gladiator arenas were discontinued because Christians spoke out. In, AD, in 315 AD, because Christians spoke out, the Roman Empire outlawed the cruel punishment of branding the faces of criminals. In 1812, 
29 moving forward because Christians spoke out the practice of burning widows alive in India was outlawed. In 1912, Christian missionaries in China spoke out against the painful, crippling practice of binding young women's feet, and it was ended. In England, William Wilberforce, a devout Christian, led the successful effort to abolish the slave trade and then slavery itself, bringing the whole practice of slavery to an end in 1840. In America, two-thirds of abolitionist leaders, two-thirds of abolitionist leaders were Christian pastors. Isn't that wonderful? Two-thirds of abolitionist leaders were Christian pastors. And during the American Civil Rights Movement, it was led by Martin Luther King Jr., a Southern Baptist pastor, and was supported mostly by churches and church groups. Friends, the point is, when Christians get involved, when Christians speak out about societal injustices, it elevates society as a whole, and it changes the nature of what's happening in those, in those communities. And this is exactly, friends, this is exactly, connecting it back to our Old Testament, this is exactly what the prophets of the Old Testament were doing. This is what Obadiah was doing. This is what Amos was doing. They were speaking against the evil policies of foreign nations and of what was happening back at home. You say, Gordon, I appreciate what you're saying, but I'm not real good at protesting. I'm not real good at, 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 at posting stuff online. I'm not real good at putting my, my, my neck out there. Um, I, I mean, it'd take an awful lot for me to want to go march on Washington, D.C. And I understand that. I get that. Um, this has been, ooh, years ago. I'm going to say, I'm going to say 12 years ago. Um, who's the guy that, uh, Dirty Harry wrote the, wrote, Clint Eastwood, thank you very much. All right, so Clint Eastwood, he was, uh, he was one of the special speakers at the Republican National Convention years ago, and he was talking about the difference between conservatives and liberals. He said one of the things about conservatives is there's a personality behind that. He said, and conservatives like to hold their cards close to their chest by nature. Like, they, they, that's, that's the kind of people they are. They don't like to put their face out there in front of the TV camera. They don't like to go stomping and storming around. They don't go down to the, the hallways of the Senate building and get in the face of senators, which, friends, I'll mean, be honest with you, that was quite ugly, and that was not decent. Um, that, was not, that didn't show decorum. It didn't show respect for the people that they disagreed with. And as conservatives, you know, that's, that's kind of the way conservatives are. It's like we don't want to just, just blow out all over everybody. Um, and so there's a way, though, that you can speak out and retain your dignity and retain the dignity of the people with whom you disagree. One of the ways that you can do that is simply by writing your senators a letter, writing them a letter. I sent Senator Mitch McConnell a letter this week. You're like, you did? Yeah. Went online, looked him up, found there's a little place where you can email, send him an email. And I know that Senator Mitch McConnell is not waking up this morning with his cup of coffee and my letter in his hand. I know that that's not what's happening. I know that he'll never read my letter, but what he did get was he got a statistic. And for those guys, that's what matters. I logged a statistic, right? They've got scales in their office. They've got so many letters here on this issue and so many letters on this side, and whatever way the scale's going, right, that really plays an influence as to the kind of decisions that they make for our country. And so I logged a statistic. And so I invite you, that's a way that you can speak out against things that are, you don't think are right that are going on. Call your congressman. Congressman Jody Heiss is our congressman here in this area. He is a wonderful man of God. Some of you have seen his signs up and down the road. He was formerly pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church, I think, years back. And then he was pastor of, 
uh, Summit Baptist Church in Loganville and did tremendous ministry in both of those locations. This is the kind of guy that we need going to Washington, D.C. to make changes there. And so you can call these folks and have them come out. He actually attends Prince Avenue Baptist Church uh, now as, as, a, as, a, as a church member there. The point is that there are ways for you to speak out that preserve the dignity of both yourself and the people with whom you disagree. A third way that you can get involved is by running for political office. You say, hold on, I mean, Gordon, you're really getting down deep into it today. No, I'm absolutely serious about this. I'm absolutely serious about this. You say, well, where's that in the Bible? We're supposed to run for political office. Well, again, going back to the many of the characters in Scripture that God put into positions of high importance in those governments, whether it be national governments or local governments. And God was deeply concerned about that. And we, I rattled off a list of names earlier. And uh, they're, they're right there in the pages of Scripture who occupied those offices. You know, one of the impacts of the 60s on our society was that Christians retreated from our public institutions. Um, Christians left the university system. Christians left their local governments. Christians left the federal governments and said, if that's the world you want, fine. I'm going to go back over here and I'm going I'm to shore things up with my folks. And we just kind of let the world become secularized. We took Christian influence out of the public square. That's one of the impacts of the 60s. I was having a conversation Friday evening with a guy. He's a cardiologist, works with Peter Kelly over at Piedmont Hospital. And uh, he went to Harvard University, and he was telling me about his experience at Harvard. And he said, if you disagreed with a professor, they would ruin your whole career. Like if you didn't toe the line of progressivism, and he said they were so far left. He said everything at Harvard is hostile toward anybody who disagrees with them. So much for tolerance, right? So much for liberal arts education, right? And so he said, I just had to learn to keep my mouth shut. And he said, people that thought like me, we would just kind of slowly over lunch figure out where one another was at. And he said, and we would be able to talk with one another and have little self-help groups every once in a while when we felt like we needed it. But for the most part, we just learned to keep our mouth shut and our hand down and our comments to ourselves. Why was that the case? It's because Christians left Harvard University, which was established back in the 1700s, maybe late 1700s, as a university for the training of pastors for for, for ministry. That's why Harvard was established. But Christians walked away from those institutions and left those institutions to their secular ideas. And now we have uh, what we have as a result. You know, it's not just being involved at the, you know, going to Washington, running for the school board. I know that season's kind of come and gone here. Uh, You only got three more weeks. I don't think you can get your name on the ballot. But nevertheless, my point is, is that we need to have Christians in these areas of influence, whether it be on our school board, whether it be on our county commissioner's office, whether it be on our city councils. We need to be involved. We need to go out into the public marketplace and have Christian influence in those places just like the characters of the Bible themselves did, shaping their societies, shaping the evil policies of their world to instead reflect um, God's goodness uh, and God in and, and a way that honors God. So who's going to run for office? <laughs> All right, so think about it, think about it. We do want you to, to have an influence there. Number four and finally is to go vote. Number four and finally is to go vote. You know, if Christians would band together as one block, evangelical Christians, 
and would stop voting for one side and the other side, half of us here, half of us there, and that we would identify the issues that matter to God, we would all find ourselves voting the same way on the ballot box. But we've been too influenced by, for too long by the traditions that we've been raised in rather than looking at the issues, rather than looking at the platforms of the two parties that we have to choose from. Friends, I went on the, on the internet this past week and thinking about this, and I looked up the Democrat Party platform. You can look at it up online. It's not, it's not like you know, some evil place, right? You can go on there. It's public domain. And you can go to the Democratic Party, and you can look up what the Democratic Party stands for, what their party platform is. You can do the same thing with the Republican Party, and you can look at what their, public, what their party platform is. The party of the Democratic Party, if you read through that thing, I'll just break it all down to you. What it is, is it's open and inclusive. That's the Democratic Party. The Republican Party is liberty with boundaries. Open and inclusive. And if you're not really, if you're not open and inclusive, then we're not interested in you, right? We don't even want you in the country. Or liberty with boundaries. And that's really the two options you have. And so go to those online public platforms. Is anybody, are y'all okay? I feel like I'm just like showing out some icky stuff here this morning. It, all right, all right, we're, we're good. I'll get a few thumbs up. That's good. Um, so my point is, is that go to those online locations and read through what the parties stand for and understand where your vote is going. Is it going toward open and inclusive or are you interested in supporting liberty with boundaries? And which one of those two best reflects through the Holy Spirit's guidance and leading what you believe to be uh, a way that honors God with your vote? So ask the Holy Spirit to guide you in this. He will. He'll instruct you if you're open and if you're listening beyond just your traditions, beyond just your, you know, getting knuckled down in certain uh, issues. If you listen, the Holy Spirit will speak to you. Um, let me sum up where, what we talked about here so far. God wants for us to be involved in politics. Four ways that we can do it is to pray for our political leaders. Number two, to speak out against societal injustices and to do it in a way that is civil and shows respect to the people that we disagree with. Number three is that we need to run, have people that run for political office, not just relinquishing the reins of the public square to the secular world. And then finally is we need to get out and vote. Um, let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your goodness to us. You know, we closed our eyes, Lord, two years ago. And we came before you as a church family on our knees, pleading for our country. Pleading for months. I mean, over a year, Lord. We prayed. Every first Sunday, we prayed. We, we literally found our knees, Lord, asking for you to heal this land, asking for you to right the ship, for you to send things in a direction that would honor you. Or we know that this country is full of people, and so it'll always have problems. Nevertheless, God, we thank you that your hand has stayed with us. God, we ask that you give us guidance. We ask, Lord, that you give us courage to speak out, to have an impact and an influence that creates a government for the greatest good of the people that it leads. 
Lord, we ask that you would uh, call some of us to step out from our retirement, step out from our busy lives, and to occupy places of influence that will direct and impact the communities that we live in. You do not want for us to be a hands-off people when it comes to our government and our society. You want the influence of our lives and the witness of the Scriptures to be imprinted all over this world we live in. God, we turn now to this table and we're reminded of your shed blood and of your broken body, which makes all these other things possible. Lord, if we weren't redeemed, then we couldn't be a redeeming agent ourselves, carrying the good news of Christ into a world that so desperately needs to hear. So we come in these quiet moments to say thank you for your shed blood, for your broken body, for your sacrifice. God, we commit ourselves completely and totally over to you. Speak to us in these moments, we pray, Holy Spirit. In Christ's holy name, amen.